John chapter 17, if you'll look with me in verses 1 through 5 this morning, the Bible says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Last week, I took some time to just introduce this chapter, this prayer, and then we covered verse 1. And we noticed how Jesus, when He begins His prayer, He lifts His eyes to heaven. He lifts His eyes to the Father. He's looking toward the direction where His help needs to come. The Bible says that I will lift up my eyes and look upon the hills from whence cometh my help. The Lord is my help. And Jesus here is looking for help because His hour is come. Jesus needed the Father to help Him because the Father is the one who sent Him to do this. He's the one who sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins, to be our Redeemer, to do the will of God. And the point there last week was this, whatever God has called us to do, God must be our strength to do it. Amen? We don't just receive of God a calling but then God also is our strength through that. So whatever it is God has called you to do, whether it be business, whether it be a student, whether it be something in the ministry, whatever God has called you to do, you need to make sure that you keep all of this in mind and and don't leave off God as your help. He's to be your help. And we also notice that He's the only one that we are to pray to. Jesus prays to the Father because He's the only true and living God who can hear and answer our prayers. We don't pray to anybody else, anything else, or any other direction, but we pray to the Father. And really, the main emphasis last week was the thought that here's Jesus who's about to be betrayed and be beaten, be crucified, go through that whole process of being tortured for you and I. And just before He's betrayed, His thoughts turn to, God, I want You to be glorified through this. And that's an amazing thought to me that before all of this is about to befall him, his only concern is that, Father, I want you to be glorified. And the the prayer is that you would glorify me, that I might glorify the Father. And see, we need to be mindful that we need to be glorified in the sense, not for our own selfish, prideful reasons, but we need to be glorified of the Father so people can see the Father in us. So just a thought there, remember... Uh, the question from last week is, is your life bringing glory to God? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now we'll be in verse 2 today, and there it says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And as I began to study this passage, I learned that there is a lot being said in this verse. I had it in my mind to get further than this verse, but I just got stuck on some things here. There's a lot we could unpack 
And I'm not sure how much to get into all of that because we could get in the weeds real fast talking about the triune God and hot button issues like predestination. A lot of that I'll bring up today, but we're not going to get real deep into that. So we'll just kind of see how it goes this morning. We'll just take it line by line here. Jesus is praying in the third person. So when He says, as thou hast given Him power, the Him being referred to is Jesus Himself. As the Father hath given the Son power, or as God has given Jesus power. Now what does this mean when Jesus says, as thou hast given Him power over all flesh? Well, I came across a lot of opinions. I want to give you three, and then I'll give you my opinion for what that may be worth. So here are some of the things that I came across. One is absolutely absurd, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But one is the notion that this verse, verse 2, this statement from Jesus, they say, proves He was not God in the flesh. That He was not deity. Because in their thinking, if Jesus is God, then why would God have to give Jesus power? And so they use that as an argument to say that Jesus wasn't really God in the flesh. But we have seen throughout this study already, through the Gospel according to John, that Jesus several times has made it absolutely clear that He and His Father are one. And He has done so to the point where the religious Jews have sought to stone Him and to kill Him because He dared to make Himself equal with God. So that's something that we find Jesus doing. It's it's not nothing new, and therefore I don't want to get hung up here too long. But listen, the Bible is absolutely clear that any who will deny that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that Jesus is the Christ, any who deny that, the Bible calls him Antichrist. The Bible says in 1 John 2.22, Who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. 1 John 4.3 says, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. 2 John 1.7 says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So again, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time trying to debunk a point that is absolutely absurd here, that Jesus somehow wasn't deity because the Father gives Him power. And the Jehovah's Witnesses would like to convince you of the fact that Jesus was not God in the flesh. And there's other religions that try to do that. But it's really outlandish to even think that way in light of the Scripture. And so I covered it at length as well when we were in John 14, 28. Not to mention, if you just take this verse for what it says, the verse itself actually eliminates that kind of thinking that Jesus couldn't have been God in the flesh. Look at what it says again here. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life. Who else can give eternal life but God? Amen. I mean, the verse itself causes that teaching to be null and void. The idea that Jesus wasn't God in the flesh, and here it says that He has power to give eternal life. There's no other God that can give you eternal life. And so we understand that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh. He is part of the Godhead. Now, with that Antichrist viewpoint out of the way, sometimes Jesus spoke about future events as if they had already come to pass. We find this often in the Old Testament when a prophet would prophesy about something to come. 
he would prophesy in a way that would be dogmatic, that it's already happened, because it was certain. Jesus here, he's, he's speaking in a way that he's already accomplished some things that haven't really come to pass yet. For example, in verse 4, he says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Jesus speaks as if all the work that he came to do was complete, but we know that isn't true yet because he has not yet died for our sins. And that's the culmination of what he came to do was to die for mankind, but he still talks as if it has come to pass. I have finished the work which thou hast given me to do. We see another example of this in verse 11 where Jesus says, and now I am no more in the world. But Jesus was in the world when he made that statement. He has not yet ascended. And so he was not long for the world, but he's, he's still in the world when he says this, but he speaks as if it has already happened. So with that kind of thinking in mind, we find Jesus here saying in verse 2, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, he speaks of this in the present tense. And there are some who will say, this is another instance where Jesus is speaking of something that will be, but has yet been fully realized. This thought is, even though in these opening five verses are spoken of with certainty as if they had already been fulfilled, but because all was not yet fulfilled, then Jesus could not have had power over all flesh yet. That's the thinking. Therefore, the inference is Jesus would not have power over all flesh until He resurrected. I understand this thought process, but one of the problems I see with that line of thinking is what we will see early in chapter 18, the very next chapter. What's going to take place there is Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane and a band of people will come to arrest Jesus and they will come armed. They will have weapons, they will have torches, and they will be ready to arrest Jesus. And as they come to arrest Jesus, they come and they, Jesus asks and says, Whom seek ye? They'll answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus responds to them, I am He. And do you remember what happened when He said that in John's account? Those who came to arrest Him, they fall backwards. <laughs> if that's not having power over flesh, I don't know what is. They're armed. And they still fall backwards. And yet, it blows my mind that they are still going to get up and arrest him anyway. You just fell down in his presence. Anyway, so I do believe he had power over all flesh, even at this point. Some will highlight how Jesus only states that he has power over all flesh before his resurrection and that he does not here mention that he has all power as power over the spiritual realm as he will after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 18, when he'll say, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, the thinking is, while Jesus may have had power over all flesh at this point, the suggestion is He did not yet have power over all the spiritual realm. But that this particular aspect of His power would not come until after He resurrected. But the problem I have with this thinking is we find Jesus throughout His earthly ministry casting out demons. That's pretty powerful. We even find the demons recognizing Jesus' power. There were times when Jesus would come, somebody who was demon-possessed, and the demon would cry out, Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Art thou come to destroy us? 
the demons seemed to understand that Christ had power over the spiritual realm. In Luke 9.1, Jesus called His twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils. If Jesus has power and authority over all devils to give that power to somebody, He had that power to begin with. Furthermore, on the night of Jesus' betrayal after Peter cut off the high priest's ear with a sword, and how many of you think he was actually aiming for his ear? He wasn't just that good with a sword. After he cuts off his ear, intending to split his head open, but misses, Jesus says, Thinkest thou not that I can now pray to my Father, and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Hey, if Jesus can ask the Father for twelve legions of angels and get it, I'd say He has power over the spiritual realm. Those are two common takes that I came across when studying this verse as a result of this statement by Jesus. You may be wondering, well, if Jesus did have power over all flesh, and if Jesus did have power over all spirits, then why does it seem like He didn't have any power when it comes to the events of the crucifixion? Well, that's the beauty of the gospel. That God would robe Himself in flesh, humble Himself, in order to become the perfect sacrificial lamb, that He might shed His perfect blood for the remission of our sins. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That's the whole reason He came as a man. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 6-8, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, and took upon Him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In order for God to take our place on the cross, He had to humble Himself as a man. For 33 and a half years, Jesus the Christ made Himself lower than the angels so that He could suffer on our behalf. Isn't that an amazing thought? He took upon Himself the form of of a servant for the purpose of being obedient unto death. So while it may seem as though Jesus did not have power over all, I want to assure you, He was still God in the flesh. He still had power over all. But He simply withheld Himself from exercising that power that He had over all flesh and over all spirits for the purpose of making a way for our redemption. He could have caused those who came to arrest Him to stay on the ground if He wanted to. Amen. He could have called twelve legions of angels if He wanted to. But He didn't because He loves you. He chose not to. He loved you enough to die for you so that you could be saved and have all your sins forgiven. You say, well, you don't know what I've done. Well, you don't know what I've done either. And I stand here redeemed. Justified. And I want to assure you, whatever you have done in your past, God can wash away those sins. Amen. His hand is not too short that it can extend as low as you can go. He can pull you out of from wherever you're at. 
He loved you enough to die for you because your righteousness will never do. And you need His righteousness. He did so because we can never save ourselves. What a wonderful Savior we have. Amen. Amen. But we still haven't fully answered what Jesus means by this statement, as thou hast given Him power over all flesh. I think it's likely that the best answer is actually right here in the verse itself. That it's not some veiled meaning that we have to struggle to try to find what this means. But it's openly stated here, I believe. Remember from verse 1, his prayer begins with a request for him to be glorified so that he may glorify the Father. And remember from last week that Jesus would glorify the Father because he came as the fulfillment of all that God had promised in the Old Testament. Jesus was prophesied in the law, the Psalms, the prophets, and Jesus came as a fulfillment of those prophecies. Jesus came as the, the perfect one who was, the, who was pictured in the shadows, the types, the figures in the Old Testament. And dying and fulfilling those prophecies, fulfilling those pictures, shadows, types, and figures. Jesus here, He's, he's going to glorify God through His death in doing that. And when we understand that Jesus came to be the fulfillment of all those things. I want you to get this now. We understand that Jesus did not just bring salvation, but Jesus is our salvation. And it's very important we know that. And with this in mind, look at verse 2 again. It says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So we see He has power over all flesh. What is that power? Is it not that He should give eternal life to as many as God has given Him? He has power over all flesh to give salvation. I looked up the word that, and it denotes the purpose or the result of the previous statement. And what it means is to the intent. As thou hast given power over all flesh, that... Or to the intent, he should give eternal life. The purpose of the power given is to be able to give eternal life. For this reason, I don't think we really have to sit here and search, try to force a meaning or anything like that, when the meaning is stated that Jesus has the power to save. Aren't you glad of that? Hebrews 7.25 says, Wherefore he is able to save them from the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. John 10, 28, Jesus said, And I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. Now I want you to notice that our text verse says that Jesus has power over all flesh. Because He has power over all flesh, He can grant eternal life to whosoever will come to Him. He has power over all flesh. And so therefore, anything that's flesh in the human sense can be saved. Now, I mention this because there are those who use this verse to try to convince you of the false doctrine called predestination. It's called a number of things, but that's sometimes what you'll hear. This is the teaching that from the beginning, God had already chosen who would receive eternal life, and that He had already chose who would be cursed, damned for all eternity without ever having a say about it. This verse is referenced in their debate 
because it states eternal life should be given to as many as thou hast given him. To as many as God has given Christ. Their thought process is, if God had to give them to Christ, then God had to have pre-selected those who would and would not be saved through the process of election. But does this statement mean God has already chosen who will be saved and who will not? Does it even say that? The problem you'll find with false doctrines is this. People will get an assumption and they will run with it like it's fact. And we see this in a lot of things in false teachings. We make an assumption and then we just run with it and say, yeah, it's true. And so the assumption here has been turned into fact for those who believe that. But I want to I encourage you, never confuse foreknowledge with something being foreordained. God knows the end from the beginning. He knew from the beginning who would be saved and who wouldn't. That's His foreknowledge. He's not bound by time. But the Bible never teaches that God foreordained, predetermined, or predestinated anybody to be damned to hell. He did foreordain the way of salvation that it would be through Christ alone. 1 Peter 1, 18-20 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. God foreordained the way of salvation, but He did not foreordain that you would be damned to hell if you're lost this morning. Hallelujah. He did predestinate that those who would come to Christ would be conformed to the image of His Son. He did predestinate that those who are in Christ would receive an inheritance. He did predestinate that those who would come to Christ for salvation would be adopted into the family and therefore, thereby become joint heirs with Christ. But I don't understand how the conclusion can be drawn that God somehow has already condemned some to hell without them even knowing about it. Not even having a chance or a say over it. I don't understand that way of thinking. Jesus, I want you to go and I want you to die, but I only want you to die for the elect. I think some other passages are very clear on this issue. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? The Lord wants all to come to repentance. Now that verse should be convincing enough, but just in case, Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I decided to look up the definition of the word whosoever. In Webster's 1828 dictionary, it is defined as anyone, any person, whatever. End quote. The Bible says... Whosoever can be saved. John 4.14 says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Revelation 22.17 says, And whosoever will, 
let him take the water of life freely. First Timothy, by the way, aren't you glad it's free? First Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, if Christ came to save sinners, we need to find out who that means. Who are sinners? Well, the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if Christ came to save sinners, and if all have sinned, making all sinners, then it's certain that Christ came to save all. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus tasted death for everyone, for all of mankind, so that all could have a chance to be saved. He didn't just taste death for the predetermined elect, but He tasted death for every man. He died for all so that all could be saved. So I do not believe that this verse could mean some are eternally damned to hell, no matter what, and ultimately have no say in the matter. And some have been pre-selected to go to heaven. God offers salvation to whosoever will be saved. If this is correct so far, what does this mean in our text verse when it says, as many as thou hast given him? Well, I believe, my opinion, it is nearing the fulfillment of what was prophesied in the Old Testament. In Psalm 2.8, it's a prophecy of Christ And God is saying there to Christ in Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Isaiah 53, most of you know, it is that great chapter in the Old Testament that foretells so clearly of Christ's suffering. It's the chapter where we read, among other things, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. And then at the end of Isaiah chapter 53, and in verse 12, it says, Therefore will I divide Him a portion with the great. God is saying, Therefore will I, God, divide to Him, Christ, a portion with the great. We understand this morning that Christ is the only way to the Father. Amen? But then the Father gives them to Christ as Christ's portion. It's prophesied that would happen in the Old Testament. Those who are in Christ, and please understand this, those of you in Christ, you are the reward of Christ's suffering. That God would say to Jesus, here, Here's you a bride. We are the reward for what Jesus did in fulfilling God's will. God said back there in the Old Testament, I will give to you a portion. I will give to you the heathen for thine inheritance. And so we are His reward. Hebrews 2.13, which quotes Isaiah 8.18, is Christ speaking and saying this, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. We are given back to Christ. So I don't fully understand all that. I'm not sure I fully understand it either. But I know this. Christ is the way to the Father and then we are Christ's reward. Amen. 
We are the gift of God to the Son. We are the spiritual seed. We are the children of the promise. And a mercy, I don't have a whole lot of time to get into that. But let me just read you two verses. Romans 9, 6-8 says, Not as though the Word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Galatians 4.28 says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. You understand, we are the gift for Christ. Are you living like it? Are you living like it? I said at the beginning of this message, there's a lot here in verse 2. There's a lot more we could get into. Some of this I've just glazed over, and I'm going to encourage you to dig deeper if you need to. Study it more closely. But here's the bottom line for today. And I want you to grasp that Christ has all the power to save. That's what the verse says. He has all power, power over all flesh that He might give eternal life. He can save anybody. And any who will place their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation can be saved. Listen, I don't want you to fall for the lie this morning that Satan, the lie from Satan which says this, you cannot be saved. How many have heard that? And I've dealt with people who said, you don't understand. You don't know what I've done. You don't understand my past. You don't know how bad my sins are. And you don't know what wickedness I have committed in my past. And I want to tell you, Christ's blood is powerful enough to wash all that away. He's able to save anybody who will come to Him in faith, believing that He's the only way. So don't believe the lie that you can't be saved this morning. Jesus Christ has power over all flesh to save whosoever. And all you have to do is come forward for that salvation. Amen? So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know your salvation. If you're not saved, I'm going to ask you to come forward and let me know that so that we can show you how to be saved. And I want to assure you that Christ's blood is sufficient. Let's pray.